Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and the children's church is dismissed. Our text this morning is probably one of the more controversial and most hotly challenged texts in the Bible with today's culture. Um, one of the things I love about expository preaching verse by verse is you don't get to pick what topics you address. You just sort of move through the book. And like Paul, who didn't shirk from declaring to the church at Ephesus the whole counsel of God, we don't dodge difficult or unpopular topics. We just try to lovingly, prayerfully work our way through them. And we're going to do that this morning with the Lord's help. Let's read 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness the self-control. Lord God, um, we, we come to your word. And Lord, we want to be shaped by your word. We don't want to shape the word in our image, but we want to be conformed to your image. So Lord, as we approach um, difficult texts, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You'd give us wisdom, Lord. We, we believe that your truth is beautiful, is wise, is right, is delighting the soul. So Lord, we just pray that you'd give us eyes of faith to see that, that you would give us understanding, that you would um, help us to understand what you have for us here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in relationship to this morning's topic, um, the, the role of women in the church, I'm sure for some of you this, this won't be a big issue. Um, depending on your background, your upbringing, you may think, what's the big deal? I assure you, for many, especially many in the culture, this is pretty much the, or one of the two, the hot-button issues. And so if, if this is to you, sort of, what's the big deal? Well, just bear with your other brothers and sisters. Um, to that end, for some of you, I know this won't be enough time. We could easily spend weeks on this. And, you know, deliberation with the elders and even talking with Pastor Gary before he left, we're just going to spend one week on this. And so to that end, we have some resources in the back for those of you who are going to want to go further with this. There's a free handout put together by John Piper and Wayne Grudem called um, An Overview of Central Concerns, Questions and Answers on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And a, another short book called What's the Difference by John Piper. It's on the table back there. It's $5.00 as well as some other books that you can use and borrow of mine um, if this is something you want to go further with. So like I said, I understand for some of you, especially if this is the first time you've looked at this topic, you're going to have questions. You're going you're to be stretched. That's okay. Praise God for that. And um, we want to work with you and help you think through these things. So if you take out the notes, before we dive into the text, I want to address two different ways to approach difficult texts two different ways to approach difficult texts. Um, difficult texts reveal our understanding of the Bible. Um, whether we submit ourselves to Scripture or whether we submit the Scripture to ourselves. Um, the test of what you make of the Bible does not come when you read those passages that you agree with. Those passages that are obviously lovely and beautiful. You know, Jesus' ethic of loving your neighbor as yourself, turning the other cheek, um, those are easy for us to agree with. The true challenge for our view of Scripture comes when we read a text that really is, is 90 degrees with what we would have thought. Um, it, it's not the way we would have done things. It's not, in our own wisdom, what we would have God do. Then we find out our true understanding of the doctrine of Scripture. Um, and to sort of simplify, there are two ways that you can approach the Bible. One is from under the text— and what I mean by under the text is the text is the authority. And we are underneath the authority of the text. And under this approach, it, it's sort of epitomized by saying this, that what the Bible teaches, we will receive and believe. And that which we find difficult and challenging, 
we will humbly ask the Lord to show us its true wisdom and beauty. So that which the Bible teaches, we will receive and believe. And, and we've got to determine if, in fact, the Bible does teach something. But once we say, okay, that's what the Bible says, then we will receive and believe it. And those things which we find difficult and challenging, we will humbly ask the Lord to show us its truism and beauty. So there's an approach that says, okay, God, if that's what you say, you're God, I'm not. Um, I'm going to try to believe that. I'm going to try to receive that. I'll be honest, Lord, I'm having, I'm having a hard time with it. Would you please help me to see the beauty and the wisdom in, in what you're saying? Because all of God's truth is wise. All of God's truth is beautiful and good. Now, there's another approach that puts ourselves on top of the text. What this approach says is, we will not receive and believe what the Bible teaches until it is shown to be wise and beautiful. Basically saying, until I think this is a good idea, until it is explained to my satisfaction, until my objections are answered, I'm not doing anything. You see, in that situation, who's the authority? We are. God's not the authority in that case. God has to meet your approval. So it's a helpful way to look at things. Is the Bible our authority? We are underneath the Bible. Or are we the authority? And the Bible is beholding to us. Now, I hope you see that the right answer is the first approach. And so we are people who submit to God's word. We are people who recognize the authority of God's word. But that still leaves the question, what does the Bible teach? So it's, it's totally right to say, hey, I'm not sure if the Bible teaches this. I'm not sure if this is for us today. I'm not sure if Paul means these things for everybody. Those are fine, faithful questions, and we'll deal with them. But just beware in this or any topic where, well, we see what the Bible teaches, and we just don't like it, and so we just don't do it. Um, that's, that's the danger. We're reminded of Romans 3, 4 that says, Let God be found true, though every man a liar. God is a majority against any number of people. So we're going to look at his word, and we're going to work through this text. And it's okay to, to say, I think this is true, and I don't really like it, but I'm going to try to do it. That, that's okay, too. There are some doctrines and topics that, honestly, the first time I encountered them, I said, okay, God, if that's what you say, I guess so. You, you sort of think of Abraham being told by God to sacrifice Isaac. He didn't understand how that was a good idea. He didn't understand the wisdom in that, but he obeyed. He submitted to God's word. Now, I do hope that by the end of our time this morning, we will have some insight into the wisdom and beauty of what God has to say, but for some, it just may be enough that, okay, this is what God says. Um, so with that, we're going to move our way through the text, and just to give you an idea of where we're going, on the front side of your notes, we're going to deal with the passage, and I'm hoping to save some time at the end to deal with some additional objections. Um, I've been in contact with some, some people at Simpson and just trying to put together some of the strongest, most common objections to what I believe this text is saying. Because I know that there are objections, and I, and I know I won't be able to address all of them. And that's where some of those resources in the back come in. Um, but that's where we're going, is we're going to work through the text, and we're going to deal with some of the objections to this. So first, we're going to see in verse 11, a command command that women be discipled. That's the blank. A command that women be discipled. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, at first reading, the words, let a woman learn quietly, sound condescending and constrained to a 20th century ear. We see that and we think, eh. But to the recipients of this letter, it was an innovative invitation to learn. John Stott explains that the woman would have been honored by the responsibility to learn in contrast to the chauvinistic rabbinical opinions of the day expressed in the Jerusalem Talmud that it would be, quote, better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they be entrusted to women. That was the, that was the prevalent Jewish understanding in the day. It's not an idea you get from the Bible, but um, the rabbis would only teach men and, and so for Paul to command, it's an imperative verb, let the women, the women must learn. Um, he's, he's making it clear that as fellow heirs of the grace of God, fellow heirs of Christ, that the women are, are equal and should be learning the scriptures alongside the men. And that's a radical notion for uh, Paul's day. In some parts of the world, sadly, it's a radical notion today. I'm sure many of you are aware of uh, Malala, the um, Pakistani girl who was shot twice by the Taliban because she had the radical 
notion of advocating that girls should go to school. On October 9th, coming home from school on a bus in Pakistan, a, a masked Taliban member came on the bus and shot her twice in the head and in the throat. She's um, in England, covering, all because she had the radical idea that women should be educated. So, to our ears, this may sound condescending, but in Paul's day, and even in many parts of the world today, what Paul is saying is actually very liberating. Women must be taught as well as men. Women must learn the Bible as well as men, together, alongside, as one unified church. Um, so both men and women are to be taught the scriptures, but learning must be done appropriately. Learning must be done appropriately. The two adjectives Paul uses to describe this learning is quietly and submissive. And I don't think this is a prohibition just for women. I can't imagine any type of learning where the people doing the learning are allowed to be loud and rebellious. Right? Um, what he's just saying is women are to be taught the scriptures, but they too are to assume the appropriate role of learners, um, which is to listen, be quiet, which is what all people being taught do. But there might be some possibility that what's being referred to is that in the first century, um, in 1 Corinthians 14, the prophets would prophesy and the other prophets would sit in judgment on it. They would discuss what was said. And it might be that the silence is a reference to that sort of cross-examination. But I think that really the concept is this, that learning is supposed to be something done submissively, quietly, by all parties. By all parties. And so Paul wants the women discipled with the men. He, he wants the women to be taught the word of God as well as the men. He wants the entire church to grow in the truth. But then, in the next two verses, he goes on to add a, a further qualifier. Two prohibitions that are given. Two prohibitions that are given. And this, of course, is the rub. This, these are the statements of Paul that most offend our culture. And sadly, many in the church. He says, I do not permit a woman to, to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So I want to look at these two commands, these two um, prohibitions, and see if we can try to understand some of what's going on here. The first is that women are not to teach men in the church. And I added in the church in because I think it's important to set the context Paul is not making some universal declaration. We, as we've seen in the previous weeks, the point of 1 Timothy, if you jump down to chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, is Paul writing to Timothy, in case he's delayed, saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the letter is written to tell us how to conduct ourselves as the church together. And so last week, we looked at um, the appropriate preparation for gathering corporately with the men with holy hands, the women with modest apparel. This is about gathering together. Where we're going to in chapter 3, immediately following, is the qualifications for church leaders. So this is not a universal principle, but rather a church principle. Women are not to teach men in the church. And this word for teach is always, in Paul's epistles, referring to an authoritative, public, doctrinal discussion. Um, a little later in, in, 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.2, he writes, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. So Paul is referring to authoritative teaching. Um, there's a type of teaching that you and I do in all of our conversations. It's the Colossians 3.16 teaching, which women are to participate in as well as men. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. This is one of those one another's, and we are to teach one another our speech is seasoned with salt. As we speak the truth in love, there's a teaching that goes on. Paul is not forbidding that. Rather, it's the authoritative teaching positions within the local church. And this isn't necessarily speaking about a Bible study or, or something like that. It becomes clear in the context that we're talking about the teaching offices in the church. And even here, it's over men. So there are teaching offices in the church for women to teach. We have, we have women's Bible studies. We have um, 
We have many gifted women in our church who are able to teach. Women teaching in Sunday school. Right now, there are some godly women teaching our, our children and youth. So Paul's not saying women can't teach. He's saying in the church, women are not to teach men. Um, and again, we've got examples um, in Acts 18.26 of, of Priscilla and Aquila pulling Apollos aside, instructing him. I mean, this, is, this doesn't mean a woman can never say anything useful to a man. Rather, again, we're talking about in the church authoritative teaching. Um, authoritative teaching. And in Titus 2, 3 to 4, the older women are to teach the younger women. And we'll, we'll be there sometime in the spring. So I don't want you to hear this, that, that women aren't to teach or women aren't gifted teachers. That's not what Paul is saying. He's very specific. That women are not to teach men in the church as their teachers. Secondly, um, that they are not to have authority over men in the church. And again, this, this ties together. Teaching and authority go hand in hand. And what he's really talking about are the offices in the church. Um, elders, which is right where we're going to next. Um, that, that there's all sorts of ways for women to serve in the church. Um, there are all sorts of ways that women in our church are serving. But those positions of authority over men and teaching of men are reserved for men alone. That, that's Paul's instruction. Now, we haven't yet asked the question, is that for us today? I, I know that. But it's clear what Paul is telling them then. Let's, let's admit on that much. Frequently, I find the tough texts of the Bible are not tough because they're hard to understand. They're just tough because we don't like what they say. This isn't terribly complicated. This isn't tricksy. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and so his instruction at Ephesus, the very least for Ephesus, and we'll, we'll get to, okay, is this for the whole church? Is this for today? We'll get to that. But I think it's clear what his instruction for Timothy to do at Ephesus is, at the very least. Um, women are not to teach or have authority over the men. And then he goes on to cite two reasons why um, this is to be done. Two reasons why this is to be done. The first is the order of creation. And the second is the events of the fall. So would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Actually, I think we'll start in chapter 1. Um, just look at one verse in 1 and then go on to chapter 2. Now, Genesis chapter 1 gives a creation overview. The entire creation week. And then chapter 2 zooms in to one event in that week. But we're just going to look at chapter 1, 26, first. And I want you to pay special attention in Genesis 1.26 to the singular and plural nouns. We go back and forth. I will emphasize it as I read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So let's just start with the observation that both man and woman are made in God's image. In fact, I'd go a, I'd go a step further and say, there's something with the image of God reflected in man that man cannot do fully and woman cannot do fully, but it takes man and woman to fully reflect. When God wants to image himself in his creation, he creates a married couple. And I think in that picture, the image is most fully seen. So now let's move on to chapter 2. Um, starting in verse 5. The creation account. Paul's first argument for why this teaching is what he gives. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, for there is no work there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man which he had formed. And if you jump down a little further in verse 15, the Lord God took the man 
and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib of the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So that is the creation account of Adam, which again Paul takes to be literal. And from it we can observe a few things. Um, the back up Paul's claim that there's a priority in leadership for men. The first is most obvious, Adam was made first. Um, secondly, Adam was tasked primarily with the charge of governing, exercising dominion, cultivating the garden. It was Adam whom God gave the law to. Before Eve was formed, it was the Lord who told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, Adam names the animal, and Adam names the woman, Isha, for she was taken out of Ish, woman, for she was taken out of man. And all of those point to the fact that there is a priority given for leadership in Adam, or even the title of the woman, his helpmeet. So we've seen that there's an equality between the man and woman of being image bearers of God, equality before God of dignity and of worth and of value, and yet at least five clear indicators from chapter 2 that God plans the man to be leading this mission. Um, but there's something even more profound going on I want you to think about. And this, this goes back to verse chapter 126, where God says, let us make man in our image. This is something profound. Wayne Grudem um, was speaking at my college a few years ago and he pointed this out and it absolutely blew my mind. God wants to make an image bearer that bears his image. Now remember, our God is a triune God. There are three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit who exist eternally in fellowship and love. And this triune God wants to make man in his image and what does he go ahead and create? He creates two people who become one with an equality of being and yet an ordering of function, which is exactly what we see in the Godhead. An equality of being where Jesus is just as much God as the Father, and yet Jesus says emphatically, I delight to do the will of my Father. We, we never see Jesus commanding the Father. We see rather the Father giving and giving work to the Son. There's a mutual honoring going on. A, there's a mutual love. But there's an ordering in the Trinity. Wayne Grudem writes, Just as the Father and Son are equal in deity and equal in all their attributes, but different in role, so the husband and wife are equal in personhood and value, but they are different in the roles God has given them. We see from these passages then that the idea of headship and submission within a personal relationship did not begin with some of the writings of the Apostle Paul in the first century. Nor did the idea of headship and submission begin with Adam and Eve's fall into sin in Genesis 3. In fact, the idea of headship and submission did not even begin with the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. No, the idea of headship and submission existed before creation. It began in the relationship between the Father and Son in the Trinity. The Father has eternally had a leadership role and authority to initiate and direct that the Son does not have. Similarly, the Holy Spirit is subject to both the Father and the Son and plays yet a different role in creation and in the work of salvation. When did the idea of headship and submission begin then? The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. 
let me say that again. The idea of headship and submission in a loving relationship has always existed. It never began. And when God wants to make people who bear his image, that's one of the ways that we bear his image. An equality of being and ordering of function. Equality and distinction. And I want to make this point emphatically because I want you to understand that this is not arbitrary. It's not as if God just decided, okay, you lead. But rather, there's a plan to image his glory. And the glory of God then becomes at stake in this. If we set this aside... If, if we think this is an antiquated notion, God's glory, God's image displayed through us is tarnished. And God is not asking us to do anything that the Son is not gladly doing. We get the honor of imaging him in this way. So his second reason then for, um, for this is the events of the fall. So let's just turn to chapter 3. His first reason for why he doesn't permit women to teach or have authority over men in the church, the order of creation, the implications there. Secondarily, because of the events of the fall. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. This is the story of the fall. And, and the, the sad tragedy of this text is everything is backwards. Remember, God made Adam to exercise dominion and authority over creation, and he made for Adam a helper to come alongside him, his equal and yet someone who's coordinated to, to follow his lead, to help, and together they were to exercise dominion over the creation. And what you get in the fall is the absolute reversal. Here comes an animal, a piece of creation. A piece of creation begins to direct and exercise authority over the man and the woman. And he comes to the woman, and then she turns around and leads her husband. And so the entire order is upside down. With the creation at top, the serpent on top, then the woman, then man. It's completely upside down. It's completely backwards. And, and so Paul is simply pointing that out. The implication is not that women are stupid or easily deceived. He's simply pointing out, look, when the order and pattern that God set up got backwards, look what happened. Good things do not happen when we abandon God's order. That, that's his point. That, that when the man failed to lead, I mean, it's just tragic. She, her husband's just standing right there. Whether that means right there or nearby, he's not protecting her. He's not guarding her. He's not cherishing her. I mean, understand, the fall is the failure of male leadership. Absolutely. The woman was deceived. And the implication isn't that Adam was guiltless. Rather, his guilt was far greater because he wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so his is the high-handed sin against God. The, the New Testament affirms this emphatically, that it was Adam who sinned. It was Adam through whom sin came into the world. Romans 5.12, for example, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Or 1 Corinthians 15.22, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul is not blaming the fall on the woman. He's pointing out that the woman was deceived. She hadn't received the command directly from God. The man had. And he passed it along to her, but she was confused. The serpent contradicted what was said. Her husband didn't step in to help. And the ordering of creation got upside down, and the fall happened. That's Paul's argument. That's his reasoning. 
Good things do not result from tampering with God's order. Good things do not result from the tampering with God's order. This is also the, uh, the, the reason, then, why men, I think, are charged to lead is to redeem their failure. Adam failed in the garden, tragically, in his leadership. And now we get to redeem that. We get to embrace the order that God has established. So those are the two reasons cited. Let's look at the last verse, 15. Let's go back to uh, 1 Timothy 2. And I'll be honest, uh, interpretation-wise, verse 15 is probably the trickiest. I spent the most time laboring over this. Um, it's, it's not an obvious passage. I'll say that. For he says that the, uh, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, she, the woman, or women, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness of self-control. Let's, let's just stop and talk about what this verse doesn't mean. It certainly does not mean justification by having babies. Um, the Bible is filled with women who don't have children. And we know tons of unbelievers who have children. Like that, We can just cross that one right off. The New Testament is emphatic that justification is by faith. Faith alone. Sola fide. The great Reformation truth. So we can just scratch that interpretation off the list. Um, some have viewed this as a promise to keep women safe in child labor, but again, church history makes it quite clear believing women have perished in childbirth. Um, so that, that seems unlikely as well. There really um, are two options that the interpreters bring forward. I think one has a lot more merit to it than the other. The first um, which I don't favor is the notion that this is a veiled reference to the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. The thought being if we keep the camera, as it were, still on Eve, um, in verse 14, the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. She will birth the Savior. Um, it's, it's possible. I think it's a bit of a stretch. It's possible. What I think is far more likely is the uh, position of Doug Moo, that... Saved in the New Testament can we mean a, a wide range of things. Um, the Bible can apply saved in past tense, present tense, and future tense. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. I um, mean, think of Romans 13. Um, encourage each other day after day. Um, for the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, and that's referencing our glorification, going to heaven, being perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. It's nearer now than when we first believed, our salvation. But Philippians 2.14 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within us. And there, the implication is about our ongoing sanctification. Well, the Bible can refer to that as salvation. And, and the reason for that is the gospel brings all of these. The gospel brings the forgiveness of sins. The gospel brings the transforming power to grow in Christ's likeness. And the gospel promises us that the Lord will finish what he starts, that he will conform us to his image. And so I think what he's saying is women are going to be working out their salvation primarily in the sphere that God has given them. Doug Moo puts it this way. We think it is preferable to view verse 15 as designating the circumstances in which Christian women will experience, i.e. work out, their salvation. In maintaining as priorities those key roles that Paul, in keeping with Scripture elsewhere, highlights, being faithful, helpful wives, raising children to love and reverence God, managing the household. This is not to say, of course, that women cannot be saved unless they bear children. The women with whom Paul is concerned in this paragraph are almost all certainly married. So that he can mention one central role, bearing and raising children, as a way of, of designating the appropriate female roles generally. What he's saying is this. Paul is grabbing a hold of the one thing that clearly sets men and women apart. Our, our culture wants to say that they're plastic, interchangeable roles. But there's one clear, big difference. My wife has had two children, is having a third, and I've had none. Right? I mean, we can pretend. We can, we can don't gender me. We can do that. But at the end of the day, there is a clear difference. An obvious difference. One of us has babies. The others don't. It's one of those things that's so obvious, it's kind of like a duh. 
And yet in today's culture, you got you to make this point because people are insistent. No, they're the same. They're completely interchangeable. Anything a man can do, a woman can do, vice versa. Well, I, I, I would challenge any man to try to have a baby. Um, so Paul is, is, is not, he's, so he's grabbing child, childbearing not because childbearing itself is the key to femininity. Rather, after going back to Genesis and showing the distinction, he's grabbing hold of that one thing that sets women apart from men in an absolute scientific sense. He's saying, look, women are not going to experience the outgrowth of their salvation in a good and blessed way as they pursue the roles of men. Rather, as they embrace those things that God has given to women, that's where they're going to bear out their salvation. I mean, turn over to Titus 2. Um, we'll, we'll get there, God willing, in the spring sometime. Um, the plan is to finish Timothy, spend another four or five weeks in the Psalms, and then go to Titus. But in Titus 2, Paul wants the older women teaching the younger women. Again, women can teach in the church. That is not forbidden. Only certain types of teaching to certain audiences. And so in Titus 2, 3 and 4, he says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's, that's the sphere, the primary sphere that Paul says women should be pouring themselves into. It doesn't prohibit work outside the home. It just says the home, the family, that is the primary sphere. You're just looking at the biology, it's kind of obvious. Um, so, so please don't misunderstand what he's saying here. Um, Paul means that a woman will be saved. She will continue to work out the results of her salvation through childbearing. That is through being obedient to God in the various tasks and roles that he calls her to, rather than attempting to teach or govern the church a role God has not called woman to. So the point in 1 Timothy 2.15 is that women are not eternally lost because of Eve's sin, but they will be saved and will experience the outworking of their salvation through their Christian lives if they follow the roles God has given them and continue in faith and obedience. That's, that's the point of what's going on here. Um, that, that he's, just, he's grabbing the generality of, of the things peculiar to women and saying, look, this is where they're going to flourish. This is where they're going to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. This is where they're going to have their greatest lasting contribution. You can almost think in Paul's mind of Timothy's mother and his grandmother, who he mentions as being instrumental in bringing him to faith. Think of the impact they had on the church. Anyway, moving on. Um, one last thing to say um, before we turn the corner to deal with some objections. This passage is not about male or female superiority. Any honest male knows that the grading curve was always messed up by the girls in his class. What man has not been outthought, outtalked, or outdone by his female counterparts? Your experiences need be no larger than your family to know women who are superior to their fathers, brothers, and husbands in every way. This is not about suitability for leadership either. It is a statistical fact that American women read more Christian books than men and attend church in greater numbers. They are more relationally oriented, more naturally emphatic. They are more intuitive about who people are. They are more verbal and are natural communicators. Furthermore, church leadership is not about power. It's about dying. That's how Paul defined the new covenant ministry, quote, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you, 2 Corinthians 4, 10-12. This is about fidelity to God's word. This is about inviting God's word to shape, shape the life of the church rather than the intrusive winds of culture. And make no mistake, if we do not let the Bible do it, the culture will. This is about gospel and mission. Paul's concern that the church pray and deport itself so all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth was one of the concerns the godly men, not women, exercise authority in the church. Paul believed that if the church joyfully lived out the creation order in God's household, 
the gospel would continue to go out with power. That's really, I think, the summary of the point in the context. Remember, we started chapter 2 with God's desire for the nations to be saved. God's desire for prayer in the church to that end. God's desire that the church work together in unity and in harmony, functioning properly. And he's just going on to give us further instruction of what that harmonious functioning looks like. And he's not done. And, and ladies, if you feel picked on, don't worry. Almost all of chapter 3 is, is directed towards the men, telling them what they need to be. So it, we're going to get it too, men. Gear up. Um, so that's, that's the text. That, that's the text. We've got some time left, quickly, if we turn over the uh, notes to deal with some objections. I know there are objections. I know I haven't yet dealt with, is this for today? And the like. I know that. But I want to make something clear. This has only been challenged recently. In the 2,000-year history of the church, it was only in the 1960s that, that serious challenges to this teaching arrived in the church. That doesn't mean that those who challenge this view are automatically wrong. It just should make us a little cautious and a little suspect. Um, Kent Hughes writes this. It's crucial that we understand that this historic interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, what I've just laid out, has been the majority view of the church at large for most of the last 2,000 years. Bob Yerborough surveyed the scholarly articles in the standard bibliographical reference tool, New Testament Abstracts, and noted that it was only in 1969 that the progressive revisionist view began to appear in the literature at the academy. But then in that period between 1969 and now, a flood of articles has appeared. He concludes that the rise in the progressive interpretation is following the women's movement of the 1960s and is indebted significantly to it. Similarly, Harold O.J. Brown observes, when opinion and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered, and the only thing that has changed is the spirit of the age, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that the spirit of the age has had an important role in this shift in the church. But let's deal with some objections. I've just got six here. I'm sure there are more. Um, I think the first one we can deal with quickly. That's just the view that Paul's wrong. Paul's a bigot. Paul's a chauvinist. Or Paul didn't write this. Later communities, the Pauline community later wrote this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that objection because um, we hold to Scripture. Just let me assure you that there's plenty, plenty of historical evidence tracking the Pauline epistles back to Paul. We can put quotations of them in the mouths of the church fathers. Um, they're, they're authentic. And there's nothing Paul is saying that isn't laid out elsewhere in Scripture, but, but we're just going to move on. And again, these challenges to the um, in, inspiration of, of Paul's letters really only arose within evangelical circles. The first was um, Professor Paul K. Jewett in 1975. So again, for 2,000 years, Jesus' sheep have heard his voice in the writings of Paul. Now, we're in the midst and the thick of it now, so it can look like, oh man, this is uncertain. But for 2,000 years, the people of God knew what God's word was. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. Secondly, and here's probably the most common challenge, and that is that this was written just for that time and culture and not for today. The thought being, well, that's the world they lived in. I've heard someone say the world wasn't ready for Paul to say more. The world wasn't ready for Paul to go all the way. And so he just limits what he says. Well, that argument would work if Paul didn't tell us why he gave his instruction. If Paul simply said, I don't permit a woman to teach her of authority in the church, then I think you could be open to discussing, well, maybe it's just for that time. But he tells us why, and he roots it in the order of creation. He roots it in the events of the fall. And so you've got to put it really simply. If Paul's two arguments backing up his teaching works then— even if you don't think they're terribly good arguments, he clearly does. If Paul's arguments worked then, why wouldn't they work today? What has changed that would make that a valid argument 2,000 years ago and an invalid argument today? And the answer is nothing. The order of the fall hasn't changed. The order of creation has not changed. So if those are valid arguments 2,000 years ago, they have to be valid today. Second, second third objection 
Um, again, another popular one. This was to address a set of particularly unruly women in Ephesus. According to this theory, Ephesus was having a massive liberation of women problem. Um, the women were leaving marriage. They were leaving the home. They were just being wild and crazy. And so Paul is just writing to them about this. Well, that objection, again, suffers the same problem as the last one, which is Paul does not say, I don't permit a woman to teach because the women are being crazy. Sort of girls gone wild, Ephesus style. That's, that's not what he says. <laughs> he roots it in, again, creation and the fall. And again, you may not think that's a terribly good argument. I read one person who said, well, if, if the argument for men being leaders is that they are made first, technically the pigs were made before them. Um, but, but Paul thinks it's a good argument. And I hope you've seen the wisdom of that argument. I hope you've seen some of the beauty of it. But that's not the reason he cites. And really, there's no evidence that, that there's this problem in Ephesus. It's really sort of an attempt to try to fit the text into what we want it to say. There's no evidence in Timothy. There's no extra biblical evidence suggesting there's this massive problem. Ephesus was a conventional Roman city. Everything we can tell from the records indicate it was ordered and orderly. Okay? Number D. Again, another popular one. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. Now, that is a quotation of Galatians 3.28. And in Galatians 3.28, Paul says, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. But it's, it's kind of forced to try to pit Paul against Paul. Paul, who so clearly lays out roles, the distinction in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14 in, in Titus 2, and to try to trump all that with Galatians 3.28. And again, nobody in church history has even tried to do that until the 1960s. There's no interpretation of Galatians 3.28 that suggests that that cancels out all distinction between men and women. It's a stretch. It's a real stretch. Of course, if there's neither male nor female in Christ, and you press it that far, then of course, homosexuality stops being an issue because there's neither male nor female in Christ. You have to go there. Um... It's either slaves nor free, it also says. There would be absolute anarchy of all distinctions. Children would be telling their parents what to do. I mean, after all, there's neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Greek in Christ. Who are you to tell me what to do? No, that's, that's not the point. The point of Galatians 3.28 is that before God's eyes, your background, your gender, that's not what identifies you. You're in Christ. And before God, you're his image bearer, and you're beloved, and you're his child. So it doesn't matter if you're a slave. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a child. It doesn't matter if you're a man. You're in Christ, and you're God's. Um, then, of course, people will cite um, biblical and modern examples of women in leadership. Um, Deborah, right? The, uh, the judge in the book of Judges. Um, and again, this is, this is another difficult argument to make because do we really want to model our lives after judges? Just think about the insanity that takes place in judges. You don't want to model church life after judges. John Calvin responds to this. Um, if anyone brings forward by way of objection, Deborah, Judges 4.4, and others of the same class of whom we read that they were at one time appointed by or commanded by the Lord to govern the people, the answer is easy. Extraordinary acts done by God do not overturn the ordinary rules of government by which he has intended that we should be bound. I'll say it this way. Narratives are descriptive. They tell us what was done. Paul's letters are prescriptive. They tell us what to do. So Judges tells us Deborah was a judge. Paul tells us what we should do. It prescribes action. Narratives don't prescribe action. They describe action. And then, finally, um, we're running short on time. This interpretation, it said, is fundamentally demeaning to women. I mean, this is really probably at the heart of the objection, is this notion that if, if women cannot assume the same positions of leadership and authority in the church, if women are not fully, and in every sense, interchangeable with men, then they are demeaned somehow. They are somehow lesser. We want to emphatically say no to that. And it's quite possible that the church and the culture has given that impression in the past. And to that, we need to repent and, and be sorry. If we tell chauvinist jokes, um, if, we, if we have ever, you know, treated women as, as inferiors, we are wrong. But remember the origin of this distinction. It's the Godhead. It's the Godhead. And so Wayne Grudem powerfully writes this. We can say 
that a relationship of authority and submission between equals with mutual giving of honor is the most fundamental and most glorious interpersonal relationship in the universe. Now think about that again, because what he's saying basically is the person of God is the most glorious person in the universe. And so he says it this way, a relationship of authority and submission between equals with mutual giving of honor is the most fundamental and most glorious interpersonal relationship in the universe. Such a relationship allows there to be interpersonal differences without better or worse, without more important and less important. And when we begin to dislike the very idea of authority and submission, not just their distortions and abuses, but the very idea, we are tampering with something very deep. We are beginning to dislike God himself. So let that sink in. If we fundamentally hate the notion of submission and authority, then we don't like the person and character of God very much. And we start to view ourselves as being better and having more rights than the Lord Jesus Christ. God's not calling us to do anything that he himself is not doing in the Godhead. Um, I wish we had time to go through Paul's high view of women. I'll just read them and we'll be done. Paul, most emphatically, has a very high view of women. He calls them fellow laborers in the service of the gospel. And it's just, look up these passages when you get home. It's just wonderful that he's calling Phoebe his fellow servant in the gospel. He's happy to do ministry alongside of women. In Christ, there is perfect equality. He praises the glories and joys of wifehood and motherhood. And he extols the powerful witness and saving effect of a believing wife that can have on an unbelieving husband. And I love, I love 1 Corinthians eleven seven. He declares that women are man's glory. I mean, God made us out of dirt, men. He made us out of dirt. And he made the women out of much more fine materials in the garden. And when Adam saw her, he said, Whoa, she was Esha, for she is taken out of Esh. She is woman, for she is taken out of man. Woman is man's glory. So I know this is a hard passage. I know that probably for some of you, you still have questions and difficulties with this. I just encourage you to wrestle on, but wrestle as those under the text, not as those on top of the text. Make use of the resources we have. Get a hold of me. Get a hold of the elders. We've been talking and praying about this as well. Um, this is God's plan. This is God's pattern. This is God's model. And we must embrace it by faith. We must ask for eyes to see it as good and right and beautiful. You are dismissed. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace.